All right, good morning, everybody. Um, nice to see you all on this uh, really foggy day. It's really cool. Um, so here we are in, in Colossians, moving right along. Um, going to try to move forward a little bit quicker here today, see where we get. Um, before we get started, why don't we start with the invocation in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, just a quick uh, recap from where we left off last week. If you'll recall, uh, we looked at um, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Uh, it was the Christ hymn that we looked into. And it was the structure of the hymn was two parts. Uh, if you recall the beginning of it, Paul really focuses on Christ as the true agent in creation. We saw that in verses 15 um, through 19. And then in verse 20 at the end, it's the second kind of aspect of it is Christ as the restorer, or the redeemer of the created order. So Christ in, in creation Christ was the image of God, is the image of the invisible God. He was one essence with the Father, which we uh, confess in the Nicene Creed, being one substance with the Father. Uh, we also talked about Christ being the firstborn of all creation. Christ was part of creation at the beginning, and all creation came into being um, through Christ in the Holy Trinity. Uh, every everything was created by the Holy Trinity, the entire universe. We talked about uh, Christ as the head of the body, which then the body, as St. Paul tells us, was the church. And then Christians, we were brought into the body of the church through, through different means. First, we were brought into the body through our baptism, and we talked about that. And then we're kept and sustained in the body, in our faith, through the Lord's Supper. Um, in Christ, then, we talked about the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within Him. Uh, we covered the two natures of Christ, that Christ is 100% fully man, at the same time, 100% fully God. And then, when we got to the last verse there, in verse 20, we started, we looked into Christ is the restorer, the redeemer of the created universe. We talked about reconciliation, that uh, Christ was the agent for the restoration of the fallen creation uh, to its original good status. And then we discussed how then Christ uh, completed the reconciliation with his blood on the cross. Any questions or follow-up about the, the Christ hymn there? Um, okay, so in our outline here today, we're finally moving out of that first overture section. Remember I talked about the overture being kind of Paul's introductions to the main themes that he's going to be addressing in his letter uh, to the Colossians. Uh, so 
we're going to look into now what has been labeled in the outline as the main exposition and resolution, which is uh, chapter 121 through 223. Uh, we probably can't make it that far today. But starting on uh, that C1 is we're going to look at Paul and what he discusses on the ministry of reconciliation. Now, even the overture ended on a note of reconciliation, which we just talked about. Paul now is really going to jump into this idea of reconciliation, give us a, a full detail of what reconciliation is, especially for his readers in Colossa. Um, Paul will set forth here in this ministry of reconciliation uh, the, what the work of Christ was or is, then the significance of the ministry of the Word of God, and then what the resulting life of faith looks like. So that's kind of what we're going to be jumping into at this point. Okay, so why don't we move on here to verse 21 of chapter 1, and we'll take a look what I'd like to do is go ahead and read 21 through 29 to kind of put in context what we're going to look at. So I'll read through it and then we'll kind of go back through this and talk about what this ministry of reconciliation is and what it looks like. So beginning um, with verse 21 of chapter 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may be present everyone mature that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. As you can see already here in 24 verses 29, we've already covered a number of these topics and discussed them, but then Paul's really fleshing out um, what's going on with the ministry in the church. So verse 21 then, we'll rewind and kind of go through each one of these in detail. And if anyone ever has any questions, just uh, stop me and, and uh, let's discuss it. So verse 21 So we see, now I rejoice in my suffering 
for your sake in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Excuse me, I want to actually start, I, I jumped to here, to verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, of course, Paul is writing this when he says you, he's writing it to the Colossians. They, he says, were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul talks about that they were alienated. That term really is, it was a, a describes a broken relationship. Um, really, when you look at the structure of the Greek, it's this alienation of God is the continual state of those who are actually without Christ. So Paul is saying that before, the, the Colossians were without Christ. And they were hostile. Um, this is describing one who actually hates rather than one who is hated. Hence, Paul is saying that those without Christ are hostile to God. And this is what the Colossians once were was or were. But here, Paul uses hostile to show that the fault for this alienation really actually lied with the readers, with the Colossians themselves. This hostility and hence the alienation were due to their evil works. So Paul is calling out what they were. But in verse 22 now we see a different thing. Okay, They were once this, but in verse 22, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, Paul is saying here that now they are in fact reconciled. And how were they reconciled? We see here that it was in the body of the flesh of Jesus by his death. So, really, Paul is attacking the false teachers here. The false teachers taught that really salvation didn't come through Christ as our incarnation and his death and resurrection. But remember, we talked about this Gnosticism where uh, their salvation actually came through this knowledge. And Gnostics were against material things, they were more focused on spiritual and their spiritual um, gaining knowledge and, and increasing in spirituality. So here, Paul, right off the bat, is emphasizing that salvation to the Colossians came from God specifically through the incarnation and through Jesus' physical life and death. And then Paul says in verse uh, 22, that because of this, um, we, the Colossians and us too are presented holy and blameless and above reproach. But because Christ's physical death, we are holy. And I talked about holy kind of at the beginning, when, when we at the very opening of the letter, where Paul talks about he addressed the Colossians as saints. And of course, as, a, as the term holy means, it really means sacred. Um, it's This is one who is set apart by God. And this is where the term, where we get saints. Um, the, the Colossians were holy. They were set apart by God. And of course, believers are called saints because through faith in Christ, they are purified from their sinful condition and are fully acceptable to God through justification. So again, holy because of Christ's death. Then blameless 
and this blameless here is has some theological meaning to it. Uh, the commentators write about blameless here. It's really an imputed righteousness. And this is how God imputes our righteousness upon us. Of course, we have not lived holy and perfect lives, but God credits, credits us with holiness that was actually seen in the life of Christ through his death and then given to us in, through the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So when God now sees us, he actually sees the righteousness of Christ. This was what it means to be blameless. This righteousness is truly credited to, to us, but of course it's not based on anything that we have done. Uh, Luther uh, refers to this as actually what's called an alien righteousness. And this means that our righteousness comes from outside of us. The Latin is extranos. So it's nothing our righteousness um, is based on anything within us or of us, but it's all outside of us. And it's outside of us to Christ and Christ alone. Of course, we have deserved nothing to deserve this imputation of righteousness, but Christ has done it all for us. And that's what the term blameless here. Paul is saying that the Colossians are blameless. In addition to that, and um, as a result of Christ's death and rec- uh, resurrection, um, he also talks. Of, he says that he that we can be presented present us toward Him. You see that here before. So it's in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So we are being presented before Him, blameless and holy. And here, when it's being, when Paul talks about to present us before Him, this really refers kind of to an eschatological um, viewpoint of as Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. But of course now, because of his death and resurrection, resurrection, because we are blameless and above reproach, um, we are already judged, um, justified, worthy. And Jesus did that to us in our baptism. As I talked about on the last day, there's no fret for the Christian then. On the day of judgment, the day of judgment are for those who are not in the faith. But our day of judgment already happened to us. It happened to us on his day, which is his death and resurrection on the cross, and then given to us in our baptism. That's where Jesus has already judged us, uh, judged us as not guilty and free from sin. And so as, as a result, no need to worry about the last day and the day of judgment. That's reserved for those who are not in the faith. Okay. So then in verse 21, as I said, there's a contrast between verses 21 and 22. Paul talks about the Colossians, how they were before, alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds. But now, because of Christ and Christ's death, what are they? Blameless and above reproach. Um, Whereas the Colossians were really once alienated and hostile to God, they have now been reconciled through the work of Christ. 
And again, that not only applies to the Colossians, but it applies to us today. Before our baptism, we were hostile to God. We were alienated. But in our baptism, we are now reconciled through the work of Christ. Um, As I said earlier, reconciliation is really the remedy of alienation. And over the New Testament, Testament, God in Christ is said to have effected reconciliation. That's everywhere. How is this done? Christ removes or forgives the cause of our of evil and evil works um, that, that we had when we were born before our baptism. That we were born and then before our baptism. So reconciled then really points to this completed event. Christ's death was the cause of reconciliation. Those reconciled to God are those who have been justified or put into a right relationship with God by the work of Christ. So therefore, no longer are we alienated, but we are in a right relationship with God. So okay, in 22 then, we saw the three... Three complementary terms of those who are reconciled wholly, above reproach, which is unblemished, and blameless. And Paul here is putting the emphasis, I think, on blameless. This indicates that the purpose of Christ's redemptive work was that we, we are acceptable to him. And we stand before him as holy ones on the basis of what he has himself has done for us as his Savior. Okay, verse 20, we got 21 and 22. Now verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, he says. So I was talking if this continuation, it's not shifting. So what Paul's saying here is, is the presence of saving faith is necessary for being reconciled and being presented acceptable before God. Um, Some of the commentaries note that Paul mentions this in view of the growing tendency on the part of his readers to follow after false teachers, which we've talked about. Faith, so faith in Christ, what Paul's saying then is in the face of this false teachers, faith in Christ must continue just as it began by hearing the gospel. Now faith here, when Paul speaks of, fle- uh, of faith, what is that? And, you know, faith is never simply a bare faith in, in something. Um, but it is faith, the faith that we talk about is faith in someone, someone to trust. So our faith, the object of our faith, our saving faith, trust in Jesus we are saved from sin and eternal death through faith in Christ and his saving death and resurrection. So faith here, as Paul is saying, um, trust in Jesus and him crucified. Uh, we do trust in Jesus with our faith and not in ourselves. And again, where do we get faith? Faith is given to us by the Holy Spirit, with, which breathes faith into us. Any questions at this point? And of course, we continue uh, in our faith as faith is strengthened as we hear the word being proclaimed 
and through the word and sacraments and the Lord's Supper, our faith is continuing uh, to be strengthened. Um, another term in verse 23, so we talked about faith, and then Paul says that you have heard which has been uh, proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So what is this, the hope of the gospel that you heard? So the word of the gospel really here is identified as the source of faith and hope. Uh, Paul really accents the significance of the ministry of the word um, to the Colossians, really as, as their faith in the gospel. But what he's saying is that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. So what he's saying is that they were within this faith. And, of course, they were first, first brought into this faith. And we talked about that earlier, about the ep, um, Epaphras, who was there at the church in Colossae. That Paul is saying that, that Epaphras really carried out uh, the pro- proclamation of the gospel. But, of course, did had, have some problems. So the ongoing ministry of that word provides the power by which Christians remain founded and firm in the faith and do not shift from it that they may continue to be reconciled with God. And it's all of that's in the gospel, which is, which is centered of what our faith um, is and how our faith is given to us as the gospel. Okay, now we look here. In your Bible, we see this Paul's ministry to the church. But before I get that, I want to I do address one thing in, in the verse before. Paul talks about um, that he, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul here in 23, and then we'll see it again in in verse 25. In verse 25, he says, of which I became a minister. What does he mean by this? Well, the Greek term is uh, diakonos, which is translated as minister here in the ESV. But it really can also be translated as servant. So in verse 23, Paul is a diakonos or a servant of what? And in the context that we just read, Paul clearly is saying that he is a servant of the gospel. For that is the true cause for which he serves the gospel. And then in 25, when we see, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. This then Paul's shifting a little bit and saying that Paul is a diakonos of the church, okay? So a diakonos of the gospel, but he's also a diakonos or a servant of the church for which he also serves the church. So this idea of servant, the Greek term, when you look at it, diakonos, be understood as, as, as any type of household servant. Um, it identifies Paul as one who is cl- completely bound to another, and that other is Christ. That's why he is a servant. He's completely bound to Christ. So, then also here, uh, Paul uh, talks about uh, a plan. Um, or 
owners. It's this kind of, it's a stewardship. In verse 25, Paul says that he became a minister according to the stewardship from God. Stewardship can also mean plan. That's why I said that. It comes from the Greek word um, oikonomia, where we get our English word economy, this stewardship or plan. Uh, Paul uses stewardship or plan to describe God's overall plan for salvation as he guides history and also the management of that plan entrusted to individual ministers of the word. So this is Paul's stewardship or his plan as a minister is to describe God's plan of salvation, number one, and then how God manages that plan. So part of God's plan for the world's redemption is his entrusting to those such as Paul, the apostles, and then pastors today, the the responsibility for proclaiming his word to the world. Okay, so that's what it means, Paul, when he talks about him being a minister. Okay, a servant, which is then is a part of the plan, the plan of God, to really preach Christ and his word to the world. Okay. Again, I want to 20, 24 here. Paul, we jump back to 24. So I talked about the ministry, but then looking back at, at verse 24, Paul opens this. Um, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. That's very puzzling when I first read this. Very puzzling comment that Paul makes. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. So a key to understanding this meaning, this verse, is really can be found in Paul's teaching elsewhere regarding the sufferings that all Christians share. Now, we won't get into too much, but there's a number of examples in Paul's writings where Paul says this suffering is, is really that all Christians suffer with Christ. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Christians share in the sufferings that are endured by proclaimers of God's word, the same as Paul himself. Now, Paul then speaks of suffering taking place in Christ. And this favorite expression of Paul really denotes a relationship um, that is created in our baptism. In Christ, we talked about in Christ earlier in in the beginning where Paul references this in Colossians 1. We talked about in baptism that we are baptized into Christ. Through baptism, we are in Christ. In fact, as Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So this is what it means when we are in Christ. Thus, by way of baptism, Christ so closely identifies himself with us with his followers that they share both in the forgiveness and salvation he acquired, he, he acquired in his death, but also Christians share in the sufferings that Christ endured. And that's what Paul's saying here when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And we've seen that throughout 
history then, the history of the church, the sufferings that the Christians have endured over the centuries, and actually the sufferings that the Christians endure today, right? But, as Paul says, that's what it means to be in Christ um, as part of this suffering, which he himself suffers in his flesh. Any thoughts or questions on that? So, oh, yeah, can... I just wondered, uh, what is the um, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions mean? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to because that is also confusing, right? So we see this suffering for your sake in my flesh, and then he says this: it is a strange. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Paul here is not saying that Christ's sufferings and death are somehow insufficient for salvation. And that he, as Christ's followers, needs to do something more in this life to make a salvation complete. But what really Paul is saying in this, um, what is lacking in Christ's reflection, is that as a disciple connected to faith in Jesus, um, his suffering, death, and resurrection through his baptism, Paul now suffers for the, for the sake of those, of others, to bring the gospel to them. So everyone suffers in, in, a, in a sinful world. And we Christians then are connected to his sufferings and baptisms. And uh, so I think what Paul's saying here then on this is rather than being angry about times that we are called to suffer as Christians, we can take great comfort in knowing that when we suffer for the sake of sharing the gospel with others, um, that we can take comfort in this, knowing that our sufferings in this way are a reflection of the cross that, that Christ lives in our lives. So Christ's sufferings for our salvation are, are complete. That's what that means. Any further follow-up on that? I only have one question. That's really hard to do when you're in the flesh. Meaning, hey, uh, that's nice words, but uh, I don't want to go through that. <laughs> you mean through the, Christ- the suffering that the Christian endures? Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, it, we do. I mean, that Christians do, and we still have faith, and we still are part of the church. But there is suffering that goes on as, as a Christian. Right? Some other than others. Obviously, other countries... Um, different. I mean, kind of we're in our own bubble at times, so we don't suffer as other Christians have, but we have seen throughout history that, you know, Christians have suffered. And praise be to God. I mean, today we don't necessarily suffer of, of those who do, but there are places in the world that Christians clearly are suffering to this day. We maybe not so much, although Christianity as a whole in America um, is suffering being attacked from all angles, political, social, Christianity is being attacked. And that's the suffering. Any further points on that? Okay. So verses 25 then, we talked about Paul becoming a minister. Um, To make the word of God fully known... 
And then in verse 27 here, what does he mean? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So it's this word of God fully known, but there's a mystery hidden for ages. What does this mean, the mystery? Paul is describes God's word as a mystery. A mystery is something that is hidden but can be made known through revelation. And the great mystery then here of the scripture is Jesus himself. The whole Bible either points to the Messiah to come or reveals that the Messiah came in Jesus. That's the revelation. The mystery is revealed and it's all in Jesus. Um, The mystery is revealed by the Holy Spirit, both in our written word and the oral proclamation of the word. Also, this mystery is revealed to the church as Christ makes himself known to the church through and when he does, it creates and, and sustains the church by his word and sacrament. So the mystery revealed by the Holy Spirit and revealed in his word and sacrament. And what do all those point to? Points to Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here. Um, then we see in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The glory of this mystery is what? Which is Christ in you. Christ. So Christ in you. The mystery is not only about Christ coming to the world, but also about Christ personally coming to each individual. Okay? It's to you. And how is this done? Christ comes to you through the word proclaim to you comes to you through your ears and that is for you and then also Christ comes to you in his sacraments he came to you in baptism where he put his name upon you okay and then weekly in our divine service when we have the Lord's Supper that's how Christ comes to us and when the pastor said the body of Christ what is it it's for you and the blood of Christ for you The mystery comes to us here in the word and sacraments. And that is Christ. And it's Christ in you and for you. Then uh, we see, so the mystery, which is Christ in you. And then we see the hope of glory. The hope of glory. The word and sacraments is really what gives us the hope of glory. And the hope of glory is this. It's God gifts of everlasting life. Now, glory comes from a Greek word, doxa, which means brightness or majestic power or fame. But really, it's God's radiant presence awaiting believers in, in heaven. This is the heavenly glory. So, when we hear Paul talks about the hope of glory, what Paul's saying is, is that we do have this hope of glory which comes to us in the resurrection, where we'll be in glory with God for eternity in his glorious presence in heaven. And so for that, which is the hope of glory, this is our hope. This is our hope and trust that based on the faith we're given, um, that then ultimately on the last day at the resurrection, our hope will be that we will be in glory with God 
the triune God for eternity. So, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay. Questions on that? Chris, there's one question in the back there. I have a question about um, that same phrase that was uh, asked about before. The uh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. And I, do I understand the answer that the Lutheran Study Bible gives um, there is uh, that, well, it says Christ's sufferings for our salvation are complete. Um, somehow, like in the realm of apologetics, um, if if someone was a skeptic, they would say, uh, wait a minute, Paul said that something is lacking in Christ's affliction, so how is saying that Christ's sufferings for our salvation, okay, that's fine, but that doesn't seem to be what Paul's saying there, so I I, I kind of feel like um, that at the very least, that's a, that's a really tricky... Uh, Thing that Paul's saying there that uh, somehow just I, I wish we could talk about that a little bit more and look at look at what uh, what's he getting at there for the sake of his body that is the church um, I do understand that the you know the study Bible says that Christ's sufferings for our salvation are complete but that doesn't seem to be what Paul is saying so can we look at that a little more yeah what with the commentary is it, it is confusing and maybe I have to go back and do a little bit more but well, the commentary points out that Paul is saying that as a disciple connected in faith to Jesus, his suffering, death, and resurrection through his baptism, Paul now suffers for the sake of others to bring the gospel to them. Um, so then we are connected to his sufferings through baptism and death. But yeah, that is a little confusing. Maybe I have to go back and do a little bit more research that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. No, Pastor, would you have anything? I think Pastor can help jump in here. So maybe a couple of things that would be helpful to keep in mind and give a frame for the conversation. I th- I would suspect that this is the case. In verse 21, he's talking about, as he's preaching, he's saying you to the Colossians who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. Um, Two things important there. Of course, there's a reversal of their position, alienated and then reconciled. And this through um, his body of flesh by his death. So that's the completed action of his death. That's where you can find that in context. And that'll be just an important key in a minute. But where he turns in 24 and says, now I rejoice in my, or sorry, back up to verse 23 very quickly, um, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So like the Colossians, as they were alienated and have been reconciled, Paul in all likelihood is reflecting on his own alienation and reconciliation. And do you remember when he's on the road to Emmaus, um, what it is that the Lord says to him? Uh, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And now um, he's going to pivot. So, so he's going to pivot and say, I rejoice now in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So Paul has been um, reconciled. He, he has gone, not, not only he himself was alienated and hostile uh, to Christ, even persecuting Christ, and now um, has been called into reconciliation with Christ through his death on the cross and now is suffering with Christ, for Christ, for the people. Okay, so I think that that's what's going on. Now, that's not exactly an answer to your question. That's just looking at the exegesis and the internal logic of the text. Um, But some of those data points are important. Okay, what we can say dogmatically is that Christ's suffering is ongoing. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you have done unto me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then here, um, that I may in my flesh fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So we have a doctrine in the scriptures of Christ's ongoing suffering. Now, even in context, we can see that if he's reconciled the Colossians to himself through the body of flesh by his death, then his death is sufficient. And that's why the study note's saying his death is sufficient for atonement. That's complete. So we don't see the ongoing sufferings of Christ having anything to do with his atonement, but it is necessary that even if the atonement is complete, he suffers in and through his people in order to bring the fullness of the church to salvation. Now, how does that work? That means that Christ, truly Christ, embodied in his people and with us, continues to suffer and to suffer with us, even as he's proclaiming the gospel in the midst of this, this hostile word, world where the devil and all his fallen angels are attacking us and through fallen man persecuting us. Even still, Christ continues to suffer. Why? That he might bring to fullness his body, that is, the church. And so in order to continue his ministry on earth, to save as many as possible, to bring to fullness his body, the church, he continues to suffer and be attacked by fallen angels and fallen men. So I would take this in the strict sense then, given that we have that whole sum of teaching, in the strict sense where he says, I am filling up what is lacking, I would take that to be idiomatic. He's not really saying that Christ is lacking any suffering as much as he's saying the fullness of Christ's suffering, which will be completed at the end of time when, when the fullness of the church has been saved, that then Christ will suffer no more because his body, the church, will suffer no more. That that is being filled even in Paul's sufferings even now, and it's just an idiomatic expression for him to say what is lacking. That another way to put it would be that which is still not yet complete, namely Christ's suffering has not been brought to an end or completion. Um, it is being suffered in me even up to this very present. And we could argue beyond Paul to the other apostles, to the other martyrs, to the whole body of Christ. We could all say with St. Paul that our suffering for Christ and with Christ doesn't end until the fullness of the church is brought in and Christ ceases to suffer and brings his glorious reign and we reign with him. I mean the same part as part of the sanctification process then. 
Yeah, sure. So this this suffering that we endure with Christ and for Christ is multi-purposed. So sanctification, being conformed into the image of Christ. And this is akin with why Christ says, he doesn't just say, hey, if you're going to follow me, prepare to suffer. Uh, he doesn't say it exactly as such, but rather he says, um, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross. And the the difference being that we are being conformed into his image and our suffering is one with his suffering. Um, our suffering, even as it takes on the form of a cross, is at its very essence his suffering and his cross. So, right, there's all kinds of ways in which the New Testament understands this theology of suffering with Christ, suffering for Christ, Christ's ongoing suffering, even to the end of the age, um, as he brings his people to salvation. And we can make a distinction between the suffering done on the cross, which is the atonement and completed, which is what the study note's doing, which is what um, chapter 1, verse 22 is doing, and his ongoing suffering materially as he saves people and brings them into his body, the church. Thank you, Pastor, for bailing me out. Hold on. Uh, um, so, I don't know. I'll run this across. Correct me if it seems off. But as you were talking there, it made me think uh, the idea of Paul being uh, filling a space um, and the idea of the, the body that is the church filling a space and just imagining like a, a cluster of grapes that might grow in where where some maybe some other grapes fell off the vine and then that that would leave a space and then Paul might be saying I am filling that space I'm just just trying to think think it through does that make any sense yeah, it sure does. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't um, be antagonistic to that take at all. It, I mean, I know that this isn't always the case, but it, it can be a little helpful here in verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings, uh, the root of which is, um, let me double check here, in my, Oh, it's 24. There it is. This mic's cutting in and out, isn't it? Okay, pathemason, so uh, pathos, suffering. Um, that's So when Paul says, I rejoice in my pathos for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ. And here the word is thlipseon, uh, and that, that word it comes from the root uh, thlipsis, which is tribulation. So that's the word um, used in Re- Revelation for the ongoing era of the church being a time of tribulation. So I think that I wish that they would have translated it as tribulation rather than affliction, simply because I think. It takes us, like if you just looked at this as this is the time of Christ's tribulation, how can you say that? Because his entire church is in tribulation until his return, and he's not separate from his church, he's one with his church. And so um, Paul sees that as, that's going to have a fullness, and I'm filling up what is lacking in that fullness even now. And when that fullness is complete, it'll be the end of the age. Paul would say, Paul isn't making some sort of egotistical claim here as if he were the only one doing that. 
um, but rather than all the apostles and indeed the body of Christ. We are all um, fulfilling that, you know, what is lacking in Christ's flipsis, tribulation until the end. And again, that just has to do with our unity in Christ having been reconciled to him by his death, such that we are one with him. Our sufferings are his, his sufferings are ours. Whatever you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me. That kind of logic. Okay. Thank you. Okay, moving on here to verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So here, him we proclaim. This is what Paul, is part of his ministry. Paul is stating that um, he is proclaiming, extorting every man and teaching every man in wisdom. This is how Paul then carries out um, his office as a true apostle, as a true apostle. Therefore, he always fulfills the word of God, um, the publication of the mystery, the substance of which is Christ. Uh, Paul actually is doing here what God wants. He goes out in public, goes out to everyone to bring Christ, the hope of glory, which we spoke about. And then this is what the church does. It proclaims, she proclaims Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And this, of course, is the proclamation of the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim Christ. And then also he says what we're doing, we proclaim, warning, and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So what Paul is saying then, the teaching of the word of Christ is actual imparting the true wisdom. Here, what Paul's addressing is he's re- addressing uh, the false teachers of the Gnostics who believed that there, there was some secret knowledge or wisdom that, that they could obtain and then it was for them alone to impart. No, Paul's saying it's not that. It's all wisdom actually comes from Christ in the word of Christ. And that's what he's proclaiming and then what the church proclaims. So that then... We may present everyone mature in Christ. And this is really the the purpose of Paul's public work here in his ministry and the ministry of the church is that Paul's purpose is to present Jesus' followers, followers as mature. What this means is that he would be complete in every way in Christ and in our faith in him and in our knowledge of his word and that's what this maturity is in wisdom okay in verse 29 Paul again refers to this for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me so if you look at this in the Greek it's really I toil and strive according to his energy working power in me so what Paul's saying then, the power really for faith and salvation, as well as the power to live by faith, comes solely from God through Christ. Paul then is only God's in- instrument. He toils, he says, he strives or struggles, but not with his own power, 
Um, but he, he, he survives and in, he is God's instrument to the power then which comes from God. And that's what he's saying there through this. So, kind of some final wrap-up thoughts then on, on this entire chapter 1 then we looked at. Um, again, while we don't know every detail, we do know that the church in Colossa uh, faced these heretical teachers who threatened to draw these Christians away from the one true faith in Jesus. Um, again, they had a mixture of maybe Jewish um, beliefs, a fascination with spiritual beings, possibly pious rituals, and secret knowledge that must be known for salvation. That's what they thought. These teachers really offered maybe a tempting path, but the one that would ultimately lead towards condemnation. Um, our Lord, not wanting to lose any of his children, um, inspires Paul to remind the church at Colossa of the supremacy of Jesus in whom the fullness of God dwells in the flesh. He is creator of all things and as the world's, is the world's only redeemer. Paul also reveals the great mystery that this creator and savior also by grace chooses to dwell in his followers for their personal salvation. With such gifts in Christ, there is nothing that, or no one that should take his place in their lives nor in ours. So that's summation of chapter 1 here. Um, now we move on. We can move on just for a bit here. Kind of Maybe I'll give an introduction on where Paul is going with chapter 2. Um, this is now moving on under this main exposition and resolution and the outline. Paul then is going to address uh, what this true, what true knowledge is. Again, we talked about knowledge with respect to the Gnostics, but now Paul is going to talk about what true knowledge is. And here is really where Paul starts and it really hits home his argument to the, Coloss- to the Colossians. Uh, again, Paul talks about this knowledge, which is a name, uh, kind of the main theme for the Gnostics. Um, and stresses again that the true knowledge consists of faith in Christ Jesus. Um, here in chapter 2, we're going to see that Paul stresses the significance of the ministry of proclaiming Christ that will be then developed more in later chapters. So, Maybe I'll read over um, 1 through 5 here and maybe have a little bit more time to discuss it. So, then this true knowledge. So, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith um, in Christ. So in verse 1 here, I'll get through verse 1 and then we'll, we'll call it. So Paul then talking about that, uh, that as I 
discussed at the beginning, remember Paul, um, he's in prison at this time, and this confirms that Paul has never seen the Colossians or any of the Laodiceans. Now, he includes the Laodiceans here. It's speculated that because this church um, was about 11 miles from Colossa and possibly were dealing with some of the same false teaching. And then at the end of Colossians, Paul does write that he asks that this letter also be sent to the Laodiceans, which is what he, what he um, is why he's addressing them here. So again, one can conclude that maybe they were experienced the same heretical teaching as the Colossians were. So then Paul talks about how a great struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Um, this struggle, Paul is showing, again, his pastoral concern for the Colossians and for those in Laodicea regarding their spiritual welfare. Paul's pastoral concern for the churches here um, really stems from the heresy that is addressing, which seems to be enticing the Christians in this area away from the gospel and thus away from Jesus and the salvation that he accomplished on the cross. So while Paul knows the congregations are tempted to follow these to- false teachings, or could be, he then, he says, uh, he still rejoices in their faith and treats the congregations as Christians. In this struggle, Paul will further lead his readers into the full knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. So on that being said, we're getting close out of time. I think that's a good uh, break. Any other further further follow-up questions or anything? Well, thank you. The Lord be with you.